Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Hi, I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum. I finished my adult reconstruction fellowship in 2017. I'm an assistant professor at Louisiana State University in New Orleans and a member of the Young Arthroplasty Group Committee. I finished my collections for part two of the boards a couple weeks ago, just submitted my case list, and I have no disclosures relevant to the topic of this podcast. You can see my full disclosures online. Great. My name is Brian Culp. I am in my third year in practice in Princeton, New Jersey, at Princeton Orthopedics in private practice. I passed my boards as of last year. And I'm also part of the Young Arthroplasty Group in AUKUS, who uh, is helping to sponsor this event. I also have no disclosures, and certainly I'm updated on the AOS website for all disclosures. And uh, my name is Josh Jacobs. I completed my Arthroplasty Fellowship in 1988, and I took uh, the oral boards in 1990, part two, and I did pass. And I had to recertify three times so far, and I'm certified through 2030. And I'm currently a professor and chairman of orthopedic surgery at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. And I have been, over the last two years, the uh, chair of the oral exam committee for the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. And as of a few weeks ago, I am now the vice president of the ABOS. And I'm thrilled to be working with the young arthroplasty section uh, help uh, provide information about the ABOS Part 2 examination. And I guess I'm part of the old arthroplasty section, although it's not formal. Thank you so much to Dr. Jacobs for joining us today. Our goal with this podcast is really to present you with meaningful educational content, a chance to get some information that you may not be able to find on the ABOS website, and give it to you in the form of personal experience and um, conversations between us that may also be arthroplasty specific to help give you some more information as you go on your journey of taking part two of the boards. So our basic setup for this podcast is to start presenting the perspective of someone preparing to sit for the board exams. Then we'll hear from uh, Brian, who's recently passed the boards, and then we'll hear a little more from Dr. Jacobs from his perspective. So we're going to jump right in to concerns during the collection period. This section is really going to be all about what it's like as you go through collections and are preparing to sit for the board exams. We're going to talk about specific concerns you may have being in academics versus in private practice, when it's good to, help or to ask for help, what kind of things you need to be thinking about documenting. These questions are really based on my own personal concerns and also taken from conversations I've had with friends and uh, colleagues going through the same thing. So do you want to take a moment to thank everyone who's helped me come up with this list of questions? So I wanted to ask Brian and Dr. Jacobs, when is the best time to take the boards? And is there any reason that anyone would want to delay taking part two? Great. So thanks, Anna, for that question. And um, I guess from my perspective, I think there's really no value in delaying. I think that, as we'll comment on in a few minutes, being board certified itself has great value for every surgeon and credibility and also standing within your system. So there's no reason to hold off on that. And I also think that the sooner you get going on the process, you're fresh out of training, you're fresh with case conferences, 
you really should do it early. Your volume will likely be a little bit lower, so you'll be able to manage. I think the only circumstances when you would not want to take it early are either when you don't think you're going to meet the critical number of cases necessary for sitting for the boards. Secondly, if you expect a major life event change or something like that coming up, or perhaps thirdly, if you are already knowing you're dissatisfied with your practice and you intend to make a move during that early first two-year window when you're recording, then you won't be eligible to sit and you wouldn't want to waste that time. What I would add, and I really totally agree with Brian, that there's very little reason to delay except in those circumstances that Brian mentioned. You really do want to do this as the soonest possible opportunity. Some medical staff offices have a limited window with which uh, they will give you medical staff privileges after you've completed your training. And you need to understand the uh, rules at each hospital that you may practice at. And if you delay it, it may put you at odds with the credentialing requirements of your particular hospital. So I would strongly encourage everyone to take the uh, Part 2 exam as soon as possible. I have heard some concerns from female friends who are surgeons about maternity leave during this time. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, if you take more than two consecutive weeks off during the process, during the six-month collection period, you just will need to sort of backdate when your collection starts before April 1st. But I'm sure in each situation, you can just chat with the ABOS folks to discuss your individual circumstance if that's what's going on. I can respond to that. If there are individual circumstances and life events, by all means, pick up the phone and call the ABOS staff. One of the uh, consistent messages we get in, from feedback from the individuals who have just taken the exam is how responsive, accessible, and helpful the ABOS staff is. And if you have a question that the individual cannot answer, they will rapidly escalate it all the way up to the executive director or to the board itself to get a response for you. So in those circumstances, for example, maternity leave, if you have any questions, pick up the phone and call the ABOS and you will get your answer. That would have been helpful for me before. Instead, I decided to be crazy and have a kid and then maternity leave right before I came back for collections. So <laughs> I think it's very useful that they have that service for you and have no fear if you feel like you need to live your life and it happens to happen during collections. So our next section is looking into being an academic total joint surgeon during collection periods. Obviously, this is personal for me. So I'm a new attending in academic surgery. I want to be a good teacher and, and work with residents in a productive way. What suggestions do you have for how to incorporate residents into the case itself? You know, how much are you going to be letting them do during your collections period? And also how to incorporate them in documentation, such as uh, doing consents, clinic notes, HMPs, things like that. So my perspective is, and, and Dr. Jacobs can correct me, that the boards is meant to really be a reflection of your practice as it will be and as it is. It's not meant to be a change in their practice patterns. So as you think about that question, you should really also think about how you're going to proceed forward with your trainees after the boards. Um, I think that, you know, the amount of documentation should be consistent regardless of if you're taking your boards. I think it's prudent for you to be rounding on the same patients that your trainees are rounding on, supervising them, 
reading their notes and making an appropriate addendum as you see, you know, I've examined them and I agree or I disagree. So I think that if you are rounding as you would otherwise do and you're documenting as you would otherwise do, you'll be well covered in that regard. With regard to allowing residents to participate during surgery, I think it's very similar. As you're a new attending and you're getting familiar with your own skill set and your own set of hands and your own instrumentation, developing a workflow, you're probably going to be giving less autonomy to those new residents who are in your room. And I don't think that that's necessarily something that should should be blackballed as the attending that doesn't allow the residents to do anything. I think they would be very understanding of the fact that it's your first couple of years of practice and that you're learning to be an attending. But I think that if there's an appropriately skilled resident and you are delegating appropriate portions of cases to them, the closure, the approach, perhaps you allow them to impact a, a stem or a cup, I think that that's appropriate and you're supervising them. And I don't know that you necessarily need to reflect who hammered the stem in or who hammered the cup in or who wielded the scalpel during the exposure in your documentation of your operative report. I think really the discretional call is you should be doing what's best for your patient. And that's uh, the boards is meant to measure that you're doing what's right by your patients. Yeah, this is Josh Jacobs. And I think I couldn't have said it better. I agree with Brian. My experience has been uh, as having been a faculty member for over 30 years is that board collection period or not, uh, our new faculty members tend to do more of the surgery. They are much more hand on, hands-on uh, when they initially get out into practice, as they should be for the reasons that uh, Brian mentioned. As the technical skills improve and experience improves and individuals are more and more comfortable, then they can get the residents more and more involved in the case. But at the end of the day, I think what Brian said is correct. Uh, we want to get a snapshot of your practice and the fact that you're in your board collection period shouldn't materially change that. What I would add is I think that individuals going into academics, in particular, they may wind up practicing at safety net hospitals where the complexity of the cases may actually be more intense than, say, in other community settings. Uh, they're typically tertiary referral centers, and there can be some very complex cases with substantial bone loss, intractable infections, and a variety of other arthroplasty disasters. So we certainly see that as examiners, and we take that into account, evaluate a patient's practice, understanding that the more complex cases certainly can lead to more variability in outcome. So that's taken into account. I would suggest, however, that while you're in your board collection period, you want to practice orthopedic surgery as it is in the books and in the journals and not necessarily go off on a limb and try some uh, new untested and unproven technique or treatment. And going along with what you mentioned, Dr. Jacobs, about the complexity of cases, what are your thoughts on asking for help having your partners scrub cases with you together during collections? So I would encourage that. And one of the benefits of joining an academic practice typically is that you may have uh, several individuals that are w trained in your specialty and all of which will be senior to you. And one way to improve your skills and uh, uh, be a better surgeon is to work with them and have them come and help you on selected cases. So I would say personally, if I was an examiner and I saw that a candidate for part two had a very complex case and he 
called in a senior partner to help him, I would think that would be a sign of uh, maturity and a sign that this individual is interested in the best outcomes for his patient. So I, I don't think that would detract whatsoever in how I would personally evaluate the outcome of surgery. So Dr. Jacobs, my question to you, and I went through this during my collection period as well, was when that person comes in, do you list the case as your case still, or should you make that your partner's case and you're there to learn from them? I think some people may be using that as a way that there are cases that don't appear on your board's case list. Do you think you should just own that case and obviously ask for help appropriately, but still own the case? Or do you think that's the situation? Do you any comment on the people who might pass that off to one of their partners as the primary surgeon and just take the second role as the secondary surgeon? Yeah, I think what I would advise is whoever is the surgeon of record should be the surgeon who is making the decisions and taking responsibility for that patient's care. And that's who should be the, the surgeon of record. And so if you've turned the case over to your senior partner and they're making the decisions and they're taking responsibility for the case, then that's their case. If otherwise, then it's your case. What are your thoughts about enrolling patients in clinical trials? For example, a new device or a new implant design during collections period? I don't think that should be a problem as long as the clinical trial is appropriately designed and approved by a local IRB and it is a reasonably conducted trial. I think that an examiner will understand that and I don't think that should detract from, again, evaluating your practice and the various facets that we're evaluating on each case, your professionalism, your technical skills, etc. Whether or not the patient's on a clinical trial, I think, is immaterial. This is a concern I've heard from friends in private practice. Does changing jobs because your practice merges with another practice or potentially is bought out affect your eligibility to sit for boards? What I would say to that is every case might be different. And again, I recommend for uh, if individuals are in these situations that they call up the staff at the ABOS, explain it, and work with the ABOS staff. And, and if the staff can't answer, as I said before, they can escalate it up to the executive director to advise about specific cases. Generally, what we're looking for is individuals who have practiced for your collection period is six months, and then uh, there's a certain follow-up period associated with that, and we want to see continuous practice so we have follow-up on those patients. And, um, you know, if there's a, a change in ownership of the practice, et cetera, that may not actually affect the board collection period. But again, I think the best advice is uh, to pick up the phone and uh, ask uh, the uh, ABOS staff. So speaking of follow-up, what is expected that you do in terms of documentation when you have patients that do not follow up? I think I can comment a little on that as well, because I've had a couple scenarios. I practice at three hospitals, one of which is a level one trauma center, and many of those patients don't even have cell phones or primary cases of residence. I was advised by one of my partners perhaps to send them certified mail, but many patients don't have an address or an email address. So I think that you should make a documentation in their electronic chart or paper chart. I've, they missed their appointment. I've contacted them. We've made the following attempts, whether it be several phone calls or an email. I didn't personally send any certified mail out because that's not part of my practice even now. I, I, I try to have our phone room call them and reschedule them, and we document our efforts. 
Yeah, that's a good answer. I guess what I'd add is that if there's a documentation that uh, you attempted to follow up with the patient in the medical records and uh, perhaps repeated attempts to follow up, there's only so much one can do as a physician. And as long as there's documentation, the attempt was made to follow up with the patient. And I think that uh, an examiner will understand that. Again, all of these examiners, by the way, they practice in the real world. All the examiners are still doing surgery. All the examiners are in academic practice. Many are in private practice. It's a real spectrum of individuals. And one of the things to realize that uh, these uh, individuals who volunteer to be oral examiners, they take about a week out of their life and volunteer. They're not reimbursed for this. They're reimbursed for their travel, but they spend you know, four days in Chicago examining candidates for the part two exam and they practice in the real world. So they understand all the challenges and patient care and follow up, et cetera. So you really are dealing uh, with a colleague uh, when uh, you're undergoing a board examination. The qualifications to be an oral examiner are that you've obviously passed your orals and you're board certified and that you've recertified at least once and there's no other issue in your practice history. And so all of these are certainly qualified to be examiners. We put them through training, both virtual training online and then training on site. And many of them have been doing it for um, uh, many years and are quite skilled and are able to help us distinguish between those individuals that don't need a minimum criteria for being an independent orthopedic surgeon and, and those individuals that might need uh, a little more time. To add on to Dr. Jacob's point, when I sat for my boards, I had three patients I didn't have really good follow-up on. One patient who was a 90-something-year-old who had expired after a hip fracture, and it wasn't until I was frantically looking for records that I Googled their name and found their name in an obituary, and none of their family responded to the phone call, so I kind of didn't follow any further on that. And, and that was just commented on. And I think the guys and gals who were the board examiners didn't actually have any negative reflection when I said, yeah, they expired. And, and I reached out and offered my condolences. One patient was actually just, you know, a patient without any primary residence phone or email. And similarly, they were very understanding. And then one patient was one that my partner ultimately provided provisional XFIX and then was followed by my partner going forward. And I provided appropriate documentation about that as well. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask the best way to handle patients that maybe you see on call and do an X-fix on or even perform the definitive fixation for, but end up seeing your partners in the future. So for me, we were at a level one trauma center. Your open fractures might be X-fixed or something like that and then washed out once or twice and then ultimately definitively fixed a week later. Our practice has a trauma surgeon who usually cleans that up for whatever's left at nighttime or weekends. And I think that I provided his documentation, why he washed it out again. I had a conversation with him asking questions. I think obviously the board would expect you to have a certain degree of invested interest in your own patients to hear how their story finished. And I think if you provide that, the reason why he chose to wait two days for an X-fix to go to a nail. I asked my partner the same question. He said it was dirty. I washed it again. And I, I relayed that information and nobody gave me any grief over that. Yeah. Again, as Brian stated, the examiners are reasonable. They practice in the real world and they have these, the same 
situations that are presented to uh, the candidates for the exam and present to them on a regular basis. So they certainly understand some of the challenges of follow-up. So this is a concern I've heard from many different people in the same situation of preparing their case list, but we're all kind of wondering what are the important complications to submit with your case list. An example would be if your patient went to an outside ER for pain and maybe they got an ultrasound that was negative for DVT and they got x-rays that were normal and they got a few extra Percocets. Is that something that needs to be submitted as part of a complication on your case list? So, Anna, I think that when you ultimately get your selected case list, you're starting to go through each of your individual cases. When you go onto the ABOS platform, there's actually a lot of checkboxes that list a number of medical complications that are part of the things they're looking for urinary tract infections, venothrombolic events, stroke, things like that, pulmonary events. So I think that in general, they tend to tell you what they're looking for. And as you go through each of your patients, your selected case list, and you're kind of reading the medical notes and you read why, it'll be very straightforward. I don't think, you know, there is an other category, but pain is not to me an other. So I did, you got readmitted for pain. That's not necessarily a complication. But I think some of the medical complications that are part of the selected things they're looking for are very easy and straightforward for you guys to enter when you're ultimately selecting your cases. Uh, I agree with Brian. What I would add is if there is a question in your mind on whether to report it or not, I guess I would err on the side of reporting it. I don't think anyone is going to fault you for over-reporting, whereas the thing that we are concerned about is under-reporting. And when we get case lists where there are no complications, that is kind of a red flag because it's hard to imagine a practicing orthopedic surgeon working over a six-month time period in a busy practice or even a not-so-busy practice having no complications in six months, including all the medical complications that Brian referred to that are on the checkboxes. So, again, I, I think you just have to be reasonable. Where you upload the cases on the website will give be some guidance, and the uh, examiner will also be able to distinguish if you've reported a c- complication that's something that's relatively minor. They also will be able to figure that out and judge that and understand that that's probably not anything under your control or something major to be concerned about. So my next question was about the peer references. What's the best way to pick who from the community to submit? From an academic perspective, my concern is I don't really know a lot of people in the community outside of my own academic practice. And I've heard from friends in private practice, they're concerned about potentially submitting people who would be competitors. So what are your thoughts on that? So some of the peer reviews that you need are prescribed. In other words, individuals at chairman of surgery, at chairman of orthopedics, individuals in your hospital, and others are uh, other peers that uh, are asked for that are not uh, specified. And I think you choose individuals who have some familiarity with your practice in the community that you may have seen their patients or some of your patients have seen them that the credentials committee of the board, which carefully reviews all these peer reviews, are pretty careful and systematic in how they evaluate them. And it's rare, but not unheard of, it's rare that the peer review process will be an obstacle 
for your being able to sit for the exam unless there really is a problem with the way you're practicing in a community. And what the credentials committee will do is if there are multiple negative peer reviews, they will reach out further and try to understand uh, if there is a, a major issue of practice based on some of the initial peer reviews. So I think it is a, um, a fair process ultimately, and one negative peer review doesn't necessarily uh, have uh, impact. It would have to be a pattern of peer reviews or repeated feedback that the credentials committee get that would cause them to uh, reach out and get additional information. How is it determined the specialties of the people doing your board exam? For example, is it based on what percentage of cases you do that are elective total joints versus trauma versus any other subspecialty? The uh, board makes every effort it can to match up the candidate's subspecialty with the subspecialty of the examiners, and we do a pretty good job there. The candidate themselves will specify their own specialty or whether they're general orthopedics, and then based on the review of the case lists, and we have caseless reviewers, that may, may be reassigned if we see a pattern that uh, is uh, different than what has been suggested by the candidate. But in general, the candidate can select the subspecialty in which they would like to be examined. And, and usually a majority of the examiners, sorry, 100%, but in the majority of the examiners are in that subspecialty. So if you are in adult recon, you will have, uh, of the eight people that examine you, over four or more of them will be adult recon subspecialists. And the reason we don't necessarily have 100% is most folks in the first two years are not just doing adult recon. They're covering trauma call. They may be doing other things. And so it's good to also have general orthopedists in the examination panel to provide input on those non-arthroplasty cases. That's helpful because I'm pretty sure my case is 50% open tibias. So there you go. In my case, in my first two years, it was about 50% hardware removals. <laughs> and um, so the examiner was surprised when I said I was an adult reconstructive uh, fellow. But that changed. So, you know, we do understand that depending on the practice location that you may have a large volume of general orthopedics in your first two years. But if you declared your fellowship trained uh, arthroplasty surgeon or you declared that you are primarily an arthroplasty surgeon, in general, you will have arthroplasty reviewers. Now, if 75% of your case list is trauma, you might actually get reassigned. But that's going to be an unusual situation for a fellowship-trained joint surgeon these days. And if I think we're correct, we're probably going to move on to the next section, which is kind of after you've passed through your collection period, what are the next steps moving forward? Kind of going to give some personal experience as well as some points that I've asked some of my recent board's passer colleagues to give a little feedback so I could include that in here. And then certainly I would welcome any additional input by Dr. Jacobs in this regard or, or questions from Anna as you go on. So a year out, obviously everything changes a little bit every year. But in general, after you've passed through your collection period and you've gotten to the end of your period of time where you have to submit everything, one of the questions that Anna had asked me and some other friends have asked me is, what kind of cases? Obviously, you want to have every case that you've performed during that window of time that you're the primary surgeon on the list. How do you do it is the first question that was asked by Anna. And I think that there's two different ways to do it. Obviously, there's an online platform where you're entering your cases as you go. And several of my colleagues kept a 
running list or a running digital spreadsheet of all their patients' names, the case performed, and they entered it in mass. I think there's also the way I kind of hybrid it with each month, I would kind of go back and make sure that I had everything uploaded. The challenge, and Dr. Jacobs can comment on, is if you're trying to collect your PROs, there's usually a window of time where you need to get that patient's email uploaded into the platform so that they can start getting it. Certainly, if it's a preoperative PRO, if you've got an elective case book. So uh, obviously, the best strategy, if you can, is to get everything uploaded in real time as, as you see them coming up, but certainly within a reasonable amount of time so that you can get your PROs in there. Uh, I don't know, Dr. Jacobs, if that's anything that you would recommend otherwise. No, I think that's a good plan. I guess I would um, just want to uh, step back for a second and talk about the kind of the pre-collection period and something that may, you know, be able to, to help you going forward. One of the challenges that we hear back on the debriefing sessions, and as I mentioned before, but I think it's worth reemphasizing, we have after every oral exam session, and this is both for recertification and for part two, we debrief the examinees and we debrief the examiners. And it's very intentional and it's a very important part of our role to make sure the exam is as good as it's gonna be and to get feedback on what worked, what didn't work, questions, difficulties that the examinees had in preparing for the exam, et cetera. And based on that continued feedback, and we've done this for years, we have progressively improved the exam in terms of the relevance, in terms of the content, and particularly in terms of the electronic platform. So I mentioned that I took the oral exam in uh, 1990. I was living in Chicago at the time, and so at least I didn't have to get on the airplane, but I had to load in my car boxes full of uh, x-rays and medical records, and I mean, it was really quite a production to bring all this material to the Palmer House in Chicago. And over the course of time, over the course of many years, we have perfected this electronic platform and also the material we asked to collect. So this is as least burdensome as possible and also gives the examiners the information they need to make a good judgment about the candidates and all the domains that we're evaluating. So these debriefing sessions really do give us a lot of information f by which we change the exam and make it less burdensome for the candidates. One such feedback that we've had is sometimes the challenges of redacting protected health information, PHI. And some individuals are very slick with digital technology and can do that in a matter of minutes with a certain version of Adobe. Others find this to be a very time-consuming and challenging process. One way to avoid it is to prospectively get consents uh, or a consent form drawn up prior to the collection period, and then when a patient comes to see you, you have them sign this consent. It can be part of the regular practice consent. I mean, this could be potentially integrated into the consent they sign anyway for treatments, which allows you to use their PHI in this fashion. And there's language on the ABOS website uh, that is suggested, not prescribed, but suggested that may be helpful for you. And planning this on the front end will, may save some arduous toiling on the back end when you have to start redacting PHI during the uploading process. So that's one thing I would certainly recommend that uh, people 
do. And also, prior to the collection period, it's it's a good idea to fully understand what's required. There's extensive information on the website, and anything that isn't covered will certainly can be asked to the ABOS staff. And the better prepared you are before the board collection period and more knowledgeable, you may save yourself some toiling and heartache uh, at the end of the period when you realize that you know, there's you know, something additional that needs to be done that you hadn't considered. I would agree with Dr. Jacobs in that regard. And I think if you go to abos.org and there's a link in the middle of the page that says become certified, you can go to the part two section. Not only are there all these rules, procedures, timelines that are updated yearly for everybody, and also some videos that are very helpful in kind of how to use the scribe platform and also how to record things. In hindsight, I wish I had had everybody sign a consent form. Unfortunately, I elected to do it the other way, and, and it, it is very time-consuming. So, and I warned Brian um, about that during the fellowship. So you, you, know, you listened to everything no, else I said, but you didn't listen to that one. I passed, though. Fear, yeah, I passed, thankfully. You know, I think the fear of a young surgeon when you're fresh in practice um, – Two things, which I, and I think I mentioned to Dr. Jacobs even in the debriefing, the PROs and the application of a consent that indicates that you're taking your boards or you're sitting for your boards. I think when I was at my time frame to take the boards, I was afraid to admit that to my patients. I didn't want people getting any specific content about the PROs saying, hey, Dr. Culp is sitting for his boards and then having to answer for questions from patients. And ultimately, and as Dr. Jacobs will mention, that really is not the way that the PROs are worded. So the patients didn't think anything else other than getting a standard PRO. And I think in hindsight, if I would have included that process in my normal consent form, you could have typed up a consent form in advance, blood consent, procedural consent, you know, protected information for research and study purposes and board collections, and no one would have ever asked any questions. And what Brian just said is a fairly common response we get during our debriefing sessions from the candidates, that they're a little wary of indicating to their patients that they're you know, not board certified and they're in their collection period. But as Brian stated, there is wording that can be used in the consent form that doesn't necessarily explicitly state that. So at any rate, it's really the choice of a candidate. Uh, I think there are ways to minimize the time-consuming step of redaction of PHI. My experience so far has been that they seem not to care. I mean, these days they get so many surveys from everything, from the clinic, from the hospital. They're not really surprised when I tell them that, hey, there's another survey that you're going to get. So I haven't had any suspicious questions or anything, even when I tell them about the board exam. I did want to add in terms of uploading the cases as you go, I found it very helpful to keep a list of every board collection case on my electronic medical record system so that I had it up there. And I also tried to incorporate going to the ABOS website and putting the PRO and the case with the CPT code in as part of my dictating the op note process. So I would finish the case, and whenever I did the op note, I would also try and upload that case at the same time so it wasn't going to be October 1st and I was trying to put all of these cases on the website at once. I think another thing to, to piggyback on what you should be doing as you go along during the period of time where you're actually collecting your cases, some people have asked, you know, is this a case that I should do during my boards? And as we mentioned during the intro section, 
this is meant to reflect your practice. So if you're going to be doing hard cases in practice, my perspective is that the boards was an indications conference. You know, I think that if you keep clean indications and good record keeping and you manage your patients well, the case complexity was not something that I shied away from during the board's period because I think that's a reflection of my eventual practice. And I think Dr. Jacobs maybe comment, but, you know, we're not supposed to change the way we do things just because it's the board's. Correct. And again, you're being examined by real orthopedic surgeons in practice uh, who understand uh, the challenges of taking care of complex cases. And so if your indications are correct and your documentation is good and you have a good knowledge base uh, and you understand uh, your cases and you come prepared, uh, the complexity of the cases will not negatively impact uh, the outcome of the exam. So I think during the collection period, as, as Dr. Jacobs and Anna mentioned, you should get on the website very early, familiarize yourself with the platform, develop a personal routine, whether it's during your dictation of your operative report or uh, you know a weekly time during your clinical schedule that you're going to put the information in real time. And as Dr. Jacobs alluded to earlier, as you get familiar with process early, you're less likely to make time-consuming mistakes that are going to cost you on the back end you know, as you're looking at the website deadline and it's approaching the end of October uh, and you forgot something, it's a lot more comfortable when you've done it real time. These days, they get so many surveys from everything, from the clinic, from the hospital. They're not really surprised when I tell them that, hey, there's another survey that you're going to get. So I haven't had any suspicious questions or anything, even when I tell them about the board exam. I did want to add in terms of uploading the cases as you go. I found it very helpful to keep a list of every board collection case on my electronic medical record system so that I had it up there. And I also tried to incorporate going to the ABO's website and putting the PRO and the case with the CPT code in as part of my dictating the op note process. So I would finish the case and whenever I did the op note, I would also try and upload that case at the same time so it wasn't going to be October 1st, and I was trying to put all of these cases on the website at once. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up here. I appreciate all of you guys for listening in. Certainly, Dr. Jacobs, thank you for taking your time to, to give us some information. Anna, thank you very much for, for your uh, perspective from someone who's in the middle of the process. I'm hopeful that the listeners are able to hopefully navigate the preparation process for when to go forward and uh, take your boards and how to start collecting prospectively. We're hoping to come back later on and maybe do another podcast edition that involves the actual uh, redaction process and the submission process that goes along with the boards and touch on some points that are salient for when you actually come out to Chicago and take your board exam uh, on how to prepare for that. So thank you all for your attention to the podcast and please look forward to some more information in our next edition. You should be able to find a transcript of this podcast on the Young Arthroplasty Group website. And as we've mentioned multiple times, please go to the abs.org website with any more questions that you may have. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.